from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Midtown Manhattan. On this week's edition, a tale of two cities, 2030 edition, Moody's new tool to assess carbon transition risk, a former CSO's mission to transform sustainability disclosure, and climate innovation bubbles up at Coke. It's a carbon nation this week on 350. It's May 10th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me here in the Big Apple is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, we're in almost your neck of the woods. <laughs> Greetings, Joel. Glad to have you here. So we're beginning as May comes around with the new season of Green Biz Executive Network meetings. So we do three each in January, May, and September. This month's meetings are here in New York at the... Uh, headquarters, the actually the New York showroom of Steelcase, the furniture and office environments company. Next week we'll be in Charlotte and Sealed Air's uh, Innovation Center and uh, the following week at the shiny new headquarters in downtown Chicago for McDonald's. But Steelcase, isn't this a cool place? I, it is very cool. There's this cool, very neat rocking chair I want to go park myself in a, after we finish recording here. <laughs> but uh, it's a lovely, um, open and bright space, really bright, very lovely. I always love meetings at Steelcase. And we've always met uh, and we've done this multiple times at their headquarters in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where at just like this uh, showroom here at Columbus Circle in, in Midtown, I always get office envy because there's you know everywhere you look you turn around it's like wow that's a cool desk oh my god look at that chair wow I would really love to have that uh, that whiteboard electronic and, and in this office for example as you can see right here in front of us there are these little pucks sitting on the desk and there's multiple pucks and each puck um, goes into a computer to project it onto these two video screens and it's cool because you just hit the puck and yours becomes the live uh, magic and you can also rat out other people who are, who are playing solitaire by hitting their puck and all of a sudden it shows up on the screen <laughs> so it's it's just cool technology so we are here and uh, what's cool Steelcase talks about their ecosystem of interconnected and interdependent spaces to design which are designed to support the physical cognitive and emotional well-being of workers that sounds like jargon, and it is, but it also speaks to this company, which I've known a long time, um, really looking at not just, you know, how do we sit and how do we, you know, type on a keyboard, but how do we live and how do you integrate that into, into the workspace? Um, and plus, they're one of the leading companies in, the, in circularity and cradle to cradle. So I'm a big fan of this company, and it's always great to be here. Yeah, you know, it and I was thinking about this a lot because I was in, of course, our headquarters in Oakland last week and tremendous expansion going on, so many exciting things at the company and also, you know, the growing pains of that, where do you put your new people and where do you make sure that, how do you make sure they can collaborate, you know, organically, not just in a meeting space. So um, I love thinking about how people work together and how drop-in people like me can be integrated more easily into the, the collaborative process without, you know, without having to put some huge office in, in place for me only when I'm there, you know, it's like. And these days we're all drop-in to our mm -hmm. workspaces. So 
let's move on from that and drop into the Week in Review. Well, speaking of big cities, let's start this week with a just amazing piece by my good friend uh, Andrew Beebe, who's the managing partner of Obvious Ventures, a venture capital firm um, based in San Francisco, and Deanne Eisner, who's a venture partner at, at Obvious, but also uh, the CWO at WeWork Company. Um, and they wrote a piece from the perspective of 2030 uh, and about North American cities and sort of the the two scenarios. One is the dystopian one where we're choking on poorly planned uneven growth and pollution and congestion and and all the things that we don't really want. Um, But of course, there's another path, as there always is, and it's the urban renaissance where there's affordable housing and construction that's uh, sustainable and, and healthy and and all of that. Um, And of course, we're all getting around with uh, just a whole range of new technologies. And they spell out, you know, what's not just what's possible, but what's already in the works. And this is a company that uses World Positive as their uh, kind of their North Star and talking about some of the investments they've already made. And some of them are not their investments. They're just startups that they like looking at at food, looking at transportation, looking at at construction systems, and how do we bring all of these up to the speed in the age of digital technology and always connected world and um, and, and still align with our goals of sustainability and affordability and inclusivity, all those all those things. Yeah, one of the things that I really came away with this when I read this story was, I didn't realize the extent to which the the construction industry is is aging. Um, I, and when I thought about it, you know, oh my, that's right. My 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 brother-in-law is a plumber, and I do think about a lot of the people he worked with. They are aging. Um, they're not thinking in in new ways, you know. Sadly, um, and and so that for me was like one of the big takeaways. I loved reading about Plant Prefab, which is one of these companies that's that's working on prefabricated building components, and how do you take some of these processes and make them much more plug plug and play to use a, a term from the the computer industry. So the extent to which we need workforce development in the that industry, we need a new way of thinking about green building. So it's not just the health the the you know what what's in this window and so forth. It it, it is about the health and well being. It's about how you collaborate. It's it's not just having an open space. You know what space works for your team. What space can evolve with your team. So that was one thing that I that I loved reading about. The other thing, you know, one of the most amazing startups that that he mentions that they mention in this piece um, was a company called Kiyo, and I just thought, whoa, okay. So here's here's what they do. Uh, they they take a look at how tenants are paying, right? So one of the one of the um, challenges as you move to a, a future where there's cities is that many of the inhabitants are probably renters, right? And they don't have the same kind of credit um, that 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 people that own have. Um, they don't have the same necessarily rights. Sometimes in some in some regulatory models, they can't vote on certain things. You know, so as a tenant, what are your rights? Um, and this company, Kio, is using the idea of of you know you paid on time to sort of rethink how someone gets credit and how someone counts as a citizen. So this sort of creative thinking um, and tools that enable this future, I think, are, are wonderful. If for no other reason, there are a ton of wonderfully 
creative startups mentioned in this piece that you should read about and, and be aware of. One that I didn't know about that I'm going to uh, look at and try out is called Lyric, which is a, an urban uh, travel environment, what we, I guess, have called hotels. But it's sort of combining WeWork with uh, Airbnb and hotels. There's a company that's buying floors of, of, I guess, apartment or condo buildings, tricking them out for travelers like us who like to work and, and but maybe collaborate or maybe socialize, depending on and and um, so there these spaces that you can rent one night or, or two months or, or whatever. Um, and uh, I looked at actually some prices. It's not in every city right now. It's in Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Minneapolis, New Orleans, Philly, and Pittsburgh in the United States. And I'm sure coming to a city near you. Uh, but uh, the rates weren't bad and uh, they looked like cool spaces so it's a way of using existing real estate that doesn't it's like the car model right like why your car sits in your garage these these apartments are are probably sitting unused or or for some reason they're they're just not being inhabited as much as they should and this gives a wonderful way of of making use of space that's already there and since so many of these uh these nicer, uh, higher-end condos are in urban cores, which is where you want to be going for your meetings and such. That, that, that just makes sense. So, so let's move over to another story about Coca-Cola. This is specifically uh, Coca-Cola in Switzerland. Coca-Cola is uh, using uh, carbon dioxide from the, the atmosphere that otherwise would contribute to, to greenhouse uh, gas accumulation and, and climate change and putting it in to carbonate water for its, uh, what's the brand? Valser. Valser. Okay, yeah. yeah. Working with a company called Climeworks. And, and this, you know, there's not enough uh, bottled water or soda that you can really use utilize enough carbon dioxide. But this is all part of the new world of carbon tech that we're seeing where companies are making a business out of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We'll be talking about it at our Verge Carbon event this, this October. It's, it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's what's kind of cool is that the, the beverage industry uses carbon dioxide for for the bubbles, really, really. That's really what it is, for the effervescence. Making emissions into effervescence is the, is the goal of this particular project. What is unique about what they're doing is, number one, their, th- this particular carbon is being captured from direct from the air, and it's it's through the work of the company Climeworks, which we've written about. One of the, they're one of the uh, pioneers in direct air capture of carbon. So these big things that suck it right out of the air. It doesn't matter where it is; it could be atmospheric. It doesn't have to be sited near a, a power plant. And the thing, the other thing that makes this unique is that it's food grade. So a lot a lot of times when they ca- you capture this this product, because it that's what it is. It's a product. Um, it's used for, for applications that aren't necessarily that rigorous um, in terms of the standards of how pure is this, what, you know, what are the health implications, and so forth. So that's also the other metric that, that this pilot, well, starting it as an experiment, um, is using. But uh, that's what makes it unique. The beverage industry is, is well acquainted with, with turning this into um, a feedstock, if you will, and I love that this is creating value, right? So we talk about capturing this stuff. Well, what happens to it afterwards? This is being turned into a, a, something that has value. Well, speaking of value, let's turn to our third story, which is about the impact of impact investing. It's by our contributor, Liz Enux. Um, and this is the first of three stories we're going to be talking about, or two features we'll be doing in a few minutes related to this world of investing and environmental, social, and governance, or ESG data uh, that you did an interview, as, and I did one here in New York. Uh, this is about a, a, 
study that was done and reported in the Harvard Business Review about you know, calculating the value of impact investing. Heather, what's going on here? So the the I mean, and I think that the the reason that I love this piece for our readers is that. Many companies, as we know, are are focusing on making investments in their um, supply chains, right? So they're putting more money towards um, efforts to train their suppliers in, in countries like China and Vietnam on all sorts of different practices, on energy efficiency, on better farming practices. A lot of the, the efforts that I've seen are for smallholder farmers. And it's really hard, like, if, as you're putting money towards those programs, to figure out what it's worth. Like, what is that how do you how do you calculate your return? So the, the this particular story looks at um, an effort by by the Rise Fund, right? It's a two two billion dollar fund managed by TPG Capital, and they went out and really tried to figure out what the impact multiple of money is. And so, for every money they for every dollar you put into an effort like this, what's the sort of community impact, the social impact, um, and so forth, and. I think one of the things that, that I came away with, other than, than the fact that this needs to, there needs to be more of this, we, we do need more focus on this, is that it's, um, it, the, the hardest thing about this is there's no end game, right? You're not necessarily going to exit that investment at some point. It's going to be continuing. So you have to factor the, the long-term nature of, of, this, uh, of these programs in it as well. So I think it's just a great um, re pushing reset on on this dialogue and is especially important now because of all the supply chain work I think that's going on around the world. Yeah, it's really great to see. And as Liz writes about it, this has been a long time coming. And I, so there's been some methodologies to go back maybe the turn of, the, of this millennium, uh, something called SROI, the social return on investment. I think that a lot of that was pioneered um, at the Haas School at Berkeley and, and some out, offshoots of that, the Red F Fund, the Robert Enterprise Development Fund. Um, and now it's getting, it's maturing. So, you know, because we talk about, you know, socially responsible investing, impact investing, and now ESG, and you, you know, is this actually making a difference? We don't always know. It also could be very instrumental in inspiring investments against the uh, sustainable development goals, right? And that is a huge thing for many companies now. They're trying to plot how they they impact those goals, and this will be instrumental for something like that as well. It, it really helps you get a handle on on what that money is worth. And of course, we'll be talking about all of these aspects of ESG and impact investing at our Greenfin Investors Summit at the GreenBiz 20 Conference, February 4th to 6th, 2020. One of the first people I interviewed as a journalist focusing on corporate sustainability was Bruno Sarda. His point of view influenced me deeply, partly because he made the leap into this field right around when I did in 2010. And he has made quite a big impact over the past decade. As Director of Sustainability and Social Responsibility at Dell, he was instrumental at driving the concept of sustainability deeper into the technology company's supply chain and global sourcing network. For the past several years, Sarda has headed sustainability at energy company NRG, where he led company-wide sustainability initiatives and helped customers better understand how to meet their own goals. Under his leadership, NRG became the first U.S. power producer to set a science-based target, and he was actively involved in evolving its disclosure on environmental, social, and governance issues. Given Sarda's history of embracing new challenges, I wasn't all that surprised when he switched roles in late April. 
That's when he was named the new president of CDP North America. Earlier this week, I spoke with Bruno about why he made the switch, the role of technology in ESG reporting, and what he'll prioritize first. Here's our interview. So Bruno, thanks for joining me on Green Biz 350. I wanted to start first with a question that I'm sure many of my audience is, is wondering, and that is what prompted your move? Why are you going to CDP? <laughs> yeah, well, thanks, Heather. Uh, always uh, always a pleasure. Um, I think, you know, uh, plenty of ways to, uh, to probably answer that, but the, really the two things I would say. One is, I think, um, really proud of the work uh, I was able to do at NRG over the past three years or so and feel that, frankly, the, the organization is, is in a great place, um, you know, in terms of the level of integration of sustainability across, um, you know, all key functions from certainly the C-suite and the board down to, you know, key functional areas. Um, it made it easier for me to, to entertain the possibility of going to do something else because I felt very confident that the work, um, you know, we had started at, at NRG was going to continue uh, to, to flourish and grow. But the second and probably more <laughs> important uh, one for sure is, um, you know, I think uh, I'm, I've been a huge fan of CDP for years. You know, I've been working with them in some way or another, both at Dell and at NRG for about 10 years, been very familiar um, and engaged with their work. I think the, the work that CDP is doing is, is certainly uh, more important than ever. I think it's reaching a level of, of both maturity and scale that um, uh, is, is really important, especially at a time in the U.S. when, uh, when frankly, we can't really count on, on, on the, you know, kind of the backstop of policymaking to really keep advancing this stuff. You know, especially because of my background in tech, I do believe that, uh, you know, data is really the fuel of, of insights and, and, you know, that turn into action. And frankly, that's what CDP is all about. Mm -hmm. Can you share some of your first priorities in your new role? I know you've been there for like, what, <laughs> a couple of weeks now, but, but still, I mean, you, have, you must have some things in mind. Can you share some of them? Sure. Um, certainly my first priorities is to really get up to speed. I mean, I know a lot about CDP that, you know, that is visible from the corporate sphere. Um, I'm learning a lot about everything else CDP does, especially all their work with, with investors, uh, both the investor signatories really that have been at the heart of driving uh, CDP's uh, strength and scale for, for nearly 20 years now, but also all the ways CDP data flows through investor decision-making and anything from, you know, ESG and Bloomberg terminals and credit ratings and those kinds of things. Um, but that's also actually one of my priorities is everything that I've already learned, I wish I had known before. And I think, uh, um, you know, there's a great opportunity to really start telling the CDP story differently because, you know, we hear so much in, in as you know, in, in the CSR sustainability space about whether it's SASB or TCFD or, or other organizations that are trying to, to advance some kind of agenda. But CDP often is mostly referred to as, uh, oh, and it's something else we have to do mid-year to push data into a system that is sometimes a bit of a black box to organizations, when in fact, um, again, there's, there's a tremendous story of how everything else that happens in the ESG space, in, uh, in the nonprofit space, really relies on, on both the, the, the strength and the fluidity and the scale of CDP data. So I think for me, that's certainly an important part of my early priorities is really try to, to raise the, the awareness and frankly upcycle the conversation uh, on kind of where CDP plays, why it matters, um, and, and how it's been successful. Going beyond, I mean, obviously climate change is a huge 
central element, but but actually CDP has done tremendous work, uh, both in terms of advancing water security through disclosure and transparency, um, as well as then now really ending uh, commodity-driven deforestation, which as much as, you know, I think we hear a lot about in in kind of the, the society, if you will, um, I don't know that that has really kind of hit the same notes at the at the corporate decision-making level that it needs to uh, especially when we talk about supply chains, I think companies that have very direct interfaces with, you know, um, some commodities like palm oil, for example, have been caught up in, in these conversations for a while. But the fact is, there's many, many, many more organizations that may be at their level two or three in their supply chain actually have a lot of exposure. Um, and I think that's something I'm going to try to raise the conversation around. Um and then, frankly, just also, um, you know, we have a great organization in place. We have, you know, uh, just over 50 people in, in the North America team and, and continuing to grow because of, of our work, again, with corporates, with investors, but also with cities, states, and regions, which is another big uh, part of um, CDP's work that had been less visible to me. Uh, and so just making sure, again, we're, 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 we're staffed for success, that we're, um, uh, you know, hitting all of our um, – all of our goals and objectives as an organization um, and uh, and making sure that, again, the North America team is is well in tune with what's going on in, in, in this part of the world and that we're, uh, you know, we're poised to succeed. You know, we've talked a lot in the past about data and how you collect it and how you report it. And you just referenced it a moment ago. Um, and and su- sustainability professionals sort of universally wish for simpler, more automated ways to report information. So I'm curious, how does CDP see um, things like sensors and artificial intelligence helping with this task of collecting? You you mentioned supply chains. That's a perfect example of it's hard to get that information. Um, How does CDP see that sort of technology playing a role in in helping this make this easier and, and, and more accurate maybe at the same time? Yeah, for sure. You know, there's, there's, I think, a lot of really interesting conversations, and, and there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is, is certainly, like Ken, you just mentioned, right, both timeliness and accuracy of data. So I think, you know, for some of what goes into a typical CDP disclosure, some of it is kind of raw data that is measured by somebody or something and, and you know, kind of feeds down into, into a disclosure and ultimately through the CDP data set into some other decision-making mechanism, whether it's a credit rating, whether it's a fund uh, index, et cetera. Um, so I think for, for, for some of that quantitative data, I mean, I can think back of my time at NRG, you know, like, you know, we knew in near real time, you know, how much was being emitted at any one power plant, right? And yet that data would have to be, you know, validated, aggregated, uh, you know, not just for CDP, but even for, you know, other types of, of you know, reporting, but that that stuff, you know, by the time you end up reporting it to the public is is pretty stale. Um, and so I think we've been very successful in really elevating the materiality of a lot of this information to especially the, the investor community. And, you know, they're not used to making decisions on 12 to 18-month-old data, right? So I think we have to look for what are those ways, whether it's the collection of the data, like you mentioned, like sensors, like other kind of machine-to-machine type systems, but then also, how does that information flow through the system, uh, not necessarily through, again, a, a once-a-year kind of disclosure mechanism, but maybe through some other more, uh, uh, um, again, kind of fluid and automated ways. So I think for some of the quantitative data, um, we absolutely will want to be part of 
you know, helping make this happen again so that the timeliness and, and, and uh, actionability of data increases. Having said that, you know, a lot of what goes into what CDP collects and, and works with organizations on isn't necessarily stuff that is measured by, um, you know, by something. So it could be, you know, how they're building resilience in their decision-making systems based on what this data tells them or how they're, you know, revisiting their governance structures around, you know, climate risk or water security or how they're, uh, you know, looking at both risks and opportunities through the lens of capital allocation and and decision-making. So I think, you know, we're going to have to always be interested in, in how do we not lose the richness of all of these kind of more, let's say, unstructured or, or narrative-based disclosures, uh, uh, while also accelerating the, uh, let's say, the velocity of, of the quantitative data that certainly investors want, but also that the rest of us want to make sure that, uh, you know, we can act on it when, uh, when we see it. So one final question, and, and, and this speaks to, I think, a turning point for reporting in general, and you've referenced it a couple of times, it's not just a sustainability world that wants this information now, it's the risk managers and the investors and the CFO. I mean, there's just this whole realm of new um, influencers and, and new people that want to consume this data. So, you know, why is CDP North America more important than ever? And how are you going to engage that that community of, of stakeholders beyond the, beyond the sustainability team? I mean, there's, you know, obviously the, um, you know, the, the, the reality, if you will, of what's happening based on both what we're seeing out of things like the IPCC report and the new guidance to one and a half degrees, but also just the data we're seeing, whether it's in the national climate assessment that came out of the federal government last November, whether it's, you know, just the the, the reality of what we're seeing. For example, 2017 was the second highest year ever in terms of costs for natural disasters globally. But the fact is over 80% of those costs were actually incurred in the U.S., and, and about less than half of those costs were actually basically recoverable to insurance. Um, and that, that was almost $400 billion uh, of total losses. Not quite as high in, in 2018, but still very high. And, and also about that same statistic that about only about 50% were recoverable. And so, I mean, these are very material conversations to have um, with boards, with C-suites, with, frankly, investors, insurers, lenders, um, you know, that's the kind of insights that comes out of the CDP data set, you know, and how we can help marry, you know, the kind of what is happening uh, to, you know, what are actually corporations or, or in some cases also cities, since we, we also work with them, you know, how are they looking at these things? How are they prepared to potentially withstand some of these shocks that either have hit them or, 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 or may hit them? Um, and, um, and so, and, you know, to kind of bring both scale, but also relevance to, to those conversations. The other thing I'll say is, uh, you know, referencing something I touched on earlier, but I think it's, it was certainly less visible to me when I was on the corporate side than it is now. And I, you know, that how important CDT data is to a lot of other things that matter to C-suites and boards, whether it's TCFD, whether it's SASB, whether it's you know, all the things that flow back to them through their investor community, like, uh, you know, ESG ratings and scores, et cetera. So, you know, also making sure that, um, you know, the right level in the organization understands 
uh, where CDP data goes and who uses it, uh, because often we find ourselves, you know, having conversations with with people who uh, um, uh, don't always have, you know, necessarily that same level of support or visibility for their work uh, in an organization, especially when trying to get this work resourced, um, because they're not necessarily hearing the CDP name as much coming out of the boardroom. Uh, and so I think that's something um, that's an opportunity for for, for me for us to. Uh, uh, to, to make that a little bit more visible. Well, best of luck. Thanks for spending some time and really appreciate it. Heather, thanks so much. One of my stops in my trip to New York this week was at Moody's Investor Services, the venerable credit rating agency. Um, and along the way, I had a chance to talk to Jim Hempstead, Managing Director of Global Project and Infrastructure Finance and also relevant for this conversation, Managing Director of the ESG Group at Moody's. Hey, Jim. Hi, Joel. So, Jim, Moody's just put out a credit transition rating assessment tool uh, for requests for feedback. Tell us why we needed a tool like this. Joel, we are uh, very focused on carbon transition risks and how those risks are affecting all kinds of sectors globally. And they're affecting different sectors with different speeds and with different scope. And so a carbon transition assessment tool is uh, an ability to provide a common framework that we can use. It's uh, transparent and verifiable that we could use across all asset classes and all geographies where we speak with a common approach towards how carbon transition risks can translate into uh, credit risks or business strategies or business opportunities. So give us some examples of what's included in a carbon transition risk assessment. The carbon transition risk assessment, the request for feedback that just went out and we're opening the feedback up for 60 days, uh, which is a, a nice period. We have uh, four key areas. We're looking at the current profile of a business. We're looking at what the exposure is on technology, market, and other types of policy changes, and we try to map those changes. We're looking at the uh, corporate response to these changes over the near term, and then most importantly, the corporate response to these changes over the long term. What is the long-term impact of a stress scenario on a company? So how is this going to be used? Will this become part of credit ratings? This is an indicator of risk. There are many indicators of risk that we use in our credit analysis. This is not a credit rating. Uh, it is, does not directly impact the credit rating. What it does is provides analysts an opportunity to uh, investigate further different areas of the companies that they cover or the issuers that they cover. And so that could inform the rating committee better and in a more transparent way. So what are some of the components of the carbon transition risk assessment? There are uh, four components to the carbon transition assessment. Uh, the first one is wh what is the current low carbon transition business profile? What are we looking at here uh, with respect to uh, its hydrocarbon value chain and things of that nature? We're looking at over the medium term exposure to what is the exposure to technology, market, and policy changes. Uh, we're looking at the medium term response over the next five years. And the last one is we're looking at exposure to a rapid low carbon transition uh, where the scenario, we're looking at the uh, IEA SDS scenario. So you're in the request for feedback phase now and at some point this will be issued in final form. What if we, when we look forward a few years, what do you hope will happen as a result of this tool being in the marketplace? 
This tool will provide uh, an opportunity to see how different issuers within a given sector are exposed to carbon transition risks as we've defined them in this report differently. So you can have companies within the automobile manufacturing sector being highly exposed to carbon transition risks or being very lowly exposed to carbon transition risks. Just because they're an auto company doesn't mean they get painted with the same risk. And so we want to differentiate within sectors. So from a corporate practitioner point of view, how does this get deployed? Is this going to be yet another survey or form or questionnaire that companies have to fill out? Or is this something that Moody's will be using in, on its own, looking at the available data or re its own research? That's a great question, Joel. Uh, as described in our uh, request for feedback report that just got published, we are using uh, publicly available data. And so the publicly available data will inform our carbon transition assessment. It'll inform our indicator of risk. And then in our rating committee deliberations, the analysts that cover the companies can incorporate material inside information, which we tend to have. What are their strategic plans? Uh, and we can incorporate that as to whether or not we think the indicator of risk is something that we should uh, incorporate in a meaningful way into the credit discussion, or if it's something that uh, does not need to be incorporated in a meaningful way. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are asking, how does this differ from TCFD or CDP or even GRI or some of the other alphabet soup out there that they're already grappling with? Well, there, so that's the issue on disclosure. So there, there is a wide variation of disclosure that we see across our rated portfolio. And so this uh, carbon transition assessment tool, which we are rolling out on a generic basis for the auto industry as well, we have put in the appendix a, a detailed il illustration for auto companies. We will roll that out for other sectors. These are different. It doesn't get into disclosure. It's just an indicator of risk of what is an exposure to the company over the near term and long term. And if you're a company that has a lot of financial resources, you're better positioned to deal with the impact over the long term period of time. We want to take that into account. And will this ultimately affect uh, the cost of capital? The, the, we don't think that the credit, uh, the carbon transition assessment will impact the cost of capital. The ratings of a company definitely impact the cost of capital. But the, again, this is just one indicator of risk. We also look at uh, cyber risks. We look at liquidity risks. We look at other types of risks as well when we're coming up with our credit analysis. We wanted to isolate the carbon transition risk exposure. Great. Well, it's great to see that that's part of the mix. Jim Hempstead is Managing Director of Global Project and Infrastructure Finance and Head of the ESG Practice at Moody's Investor Services. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you, Joel. It was a pleasure. As I said at the beginning of the show, we're having our Green Biz Executive Network meeting this week at the Steelcase Showroom in uh, New York City, right on top of Columbus Circle. And with me here is Angela Nahikian, the Global Director of Sustainability here at Steelcase. Angela, always great to see you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here in our spaces and uh, all of the GBEN members, and it's been a great two days. So the... Uh, spaces are spectacular and we all always leave here with office envy because you've got such great things but one of the things you've been working on for a number of years is 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 looking at the circular economy as it relates to the the products and, that you make and the services and i'm just wondering where that is where how's that how's that going 
Well, um, about three years ago, we wanted to understand how it was that we were going to get to um, sort of circular economy business modeling. And we've had customers asking us for, um, you know, not just products, but they're really seeking agility. They're really seeking a lot of flexibility. It's sort of a rebirth of those things that have always been part of what companies are aspiring to, but especially now, and it's taken on a, a little different flavor. So we felt that it was time to bring this, you know, market uh, shift and trend together with um, strategy. You know, how are we going to not respond to that, but perhaps lead it. And so we uh, did a, a, an understand phase to see how ready we were to actually run those models. And we, um, we did that work, that heavy lifting way up front, and we set uh, a plan, which would be about six to eight years, we, we imagined that it would take us to uh, build all of the capabilities that we would need. So we started the first two years with just shoring up everything that we were doing and making sure that we were doing that as well as we could be doing. And we added a number of other dimensions that would be considered baseline to operating circular economy models. So we're nearing the end of uh, the first two years of that six to eight year journey. And we're about ready to do an assessment. And it's been an incredibly insightful uh, experience and it's been uh, really rewarding, I think, for a lot of the people, but it's also been really, really difficult to do because, you know, we're, we're trying to advance 17 work streams across the company at a time. Yeah, that's a quite a busy roadmap. What are some of the surprising things, either good or bad, that you didn't really see coming that you learned along the way so far? Yeah, well, I'm a I'm a, a realistic optimist, you know, but I did expect to see, you know, huge gaps in capability, things that, you know, we would have to maybe build from the ground up. Uh, what we have seen is a lot of the elements we already have. We already have capabilities. It's a matter of seeing them differently and pivoting uh, on those capabilities and redirecting maybe the purpose uh, of some of those efforts. So, for example, we have services. Uh, we have certainly we've been investing for a very long time in product circularity and cradle-to-cradle um, -cradle product design, design thinking. Those are all advantages for us at this point. But as we know, circular economy goes way beyond, you know, closed-loop products and materials. Um, so it's it's um, made us take a look maybe at um, you know that isn't enough in a circular economy in terms of products. You know, we we have to really think about what are the other, what's the other layer that we need to layer on top of that you know, uh, great design, delivering good value, but what are the other attributes that a product might need, for example? So that would be one example. So what's the vision now, and, and how has it changed from the original vision? Well, I think that, you know, we didn't really, um, we had a vision that, you know, this that sustainability through this lens could be better integrated into the core of the business. You know, it, it could do even better, an even better job of delivering value to our customers and our, all of our stakeholders, including our shareholders, and um, be, you know, sort of a next level of inspiration for us uh, in a lot of ways. And we have had a lot of new business initiatives, you know, sort of incubating in this space where we're, we're actually providing, you know, event services. We have, you know, kind of a subscri subscription business. Uh, 
Um, we have a, a lot of assets that we're learning from. Um, but this really was about, I think, really trying to advance that thinking and vision at beyond, you know, the the very far. But what can we do today? And 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 how does that far vision shape what we do now in the, to the near term and beyond? So I think more than anything, it gave us more of a, a sense of roadmap, uh, maybe than a, a, a true shift in vision. And I think it also is a great. Um, uh, it's very humbling because you know change takes time, and so it will be a long time, I think, before you know the full vision would be realized. And and I think that's the big learning. You know, we need to start now. Now is the moment. Well, the vision is one that you've been generously sharing with others, and, and I really appreciate that, and look forward to seeing having you share it at our Circularity 19 conference in June. So, um, thank you for this beautiful space and for sharing the space and uh, and your insights about circularity. Oh, it's a pleasure and it's always a pleasure talking with you, Joel. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week from the Big Apple. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weekly comes out on Wednesdays, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. Check out the other three, too, on transportation and mobility, clean energy, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week as usual. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 